Section 11 of Part 3 of Religious Affections. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matthew James Gray, mjgray.id.au. Religious Affections by Jonathan Edwards. Section 11 of Part 3. 6. Gracious affections are attended with evangelical humiliation. Evangelical humiliation is a sense that a Christian has of his own utter insufficiency, despicableness, and odiousness with an answerable frame of heart. There is a distinction to be made between a legal and evangelical humiliation. The former is what men may be the subject of, while they are yet in a state of nature and have no gracious affections. The latter is peculiar to true saints. The former is from the common influence of the Spirit of God, assisting natural principles and especially natural conscience. The latter is from the special influences of the Spirit of God, implanting and exercising supernatural and divine principles. The former is from the minds being assisted to a greater sense of the things of religion as to their natural properties and qualities, and particularly of the natural perfections of God, such as his greatness, terrible majesty, etc., which were manifested to the congregation of Israel in giving the law at Mount Sinai. The latter is from a sense of the transcendent beauty of divine things in their moral qualities. In the former, a sense of the awful greatness and natural perfections of God and of the strictness of his law convinces men that they are exceeding sinful and guilty and exposed to the wrath of God as it will wicked men and devils at the day of judgment. But they do not see their own odiousness on the account of sin. They do not see the hateful nature of sin. A sense of this is given in evangelical humiliation by a discovery of the beauty of God's holiness and moral perfection. In a legal humiliation, men are made sensible that they are little and nothing before the great and terrible God, and that they are undone and wholly insufficient to help themselves, as wicked men will be at the day of judgment. But they have not an answerable frame of heart, consisting in a disposition to abase themselves and exalt God alone. This disposition is given only in evangelical humiliation, by overcoming the heart, and changing its inclination, by a discovery of God's holy beauty. In a legal humiliation, the conscience is convinced, as the consciences of all will be most perfectly at the day of judgment. But because there is no spiritual understanding, the will is not bowed, nor the inclination altered. This is done only in evangelical humiliation. In legal humiliation, men are brought to despair of helping themselves. In evangelical, they are brought voluntarily to deny and renounce themselves. In the former, they are subdued and forced to the ground. In the latter, they are brought sweetly to yield, and freely and with delight to prostrate themselves at the feet of God. Legal humiliation has in it no spiritual good, nothing of the nature of true virtue, whereas evangelical humiliation is that wherein the excellent beauty of Christian grace does very much consist. Legal humiliation is useful 
as a means in order to evangelical, as a common knowledge of the things of religion is a means requisite in order to spiritual knowledge. Men may be legally humbled and have no humility, as the wicked at the day of judgment will be thoroughly convinced that they have no righteousness, but are altogether sinful and exceedingly guilty and justly exposed to eternal damnation, and be fully sensible of their own helplessness, without the least mortification of the pride of their hearts. But the essence of evangelical humiliation consists in such humility as becomes a creature in itself exceeding sinful under a dispensation of grace, consisting in a mean esteem of himself as in himself nothing, and altogether contemptible and odious, attended with a mortification of a disposition to exalt himself and a free renunciation of his own glory. This is a great and most essential thing in true religion. The whole frame of the gospel and everything appertaining to the new covenant and all God's dispensations towards fallen man are calculated to bring to pass this effect in the hearts of men. They that are destitute of this have no true religion, whatsoever profession they may make, and how high soever their religious affections may be. Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith, i.e. he shall live by his faith on God's righteousness and grace, and not his own goodness and excellency. God has abundantly manifested in his word that this is what he has a peculiar respect to in his saints, and that nothing is acceptable to him without it. Psalm 34 verse 18 The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. Psalm 51 verse 17 The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Psalm 138 verse 6 Though the Lord be high, yet hath he respect unto the lowly. Proverbs chapter 3 verse 34 He giveth grace unto the lowly. Isaiah chapter 57 verse 15 Thus saith the High and Lofty One who inhabiteth eternity, whose name is Holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble, and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Isaiah chapter 66 verses 1 and 2 Thus saith the Lord, The heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool, but to this man will I look even to him that is poor, and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. Micah chapter 6 verse 8 He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord thy God require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Matthew chapter 5 verse 3 Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 18, verses 3 and 4. Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted, and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Mark chapter 10, verse 15. Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. The centurion 
that we have an account of, Luke 7, acknowledged that he was not worthy that Christ should enter under his roof and that he was not worthy to come to him. See the manner of the woman's coming to Christ that was a sinner, Luke chapter 7, verse 37, etc. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment, and stood at his feet behind him weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head. She did not think the hair of her head, which is the natural crown and glory of a woman, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 15, too good to wipe the feet of Christ withal. Jesus most graciously accepted her, and says to her, Thy faith hath saved thee, go in peace. The woman of Canaan submitted to Christ in his saying, It is not meet to take the children's bread and cast it to dogs, and did, as it were, own that she was worthy to be called a dog. Whereupon Christ says unto her, O woman, great is thy faith, be it unto thee, even as thou wilt. Matthew chapter 15, verses 26, 27, and 28. The prodigal son said, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. Luke chapter 15, verse 18, etc. See also Luke chapter 18, verse 9, etc. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others, etc. The publican, standing afar off, would not so much as lift up his eyes to heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For every one that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Matthew chapter 28 verse 9 And they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Colossians chapter 3 verse 12 Put ye on as the elect of God humbleness of mind. Ezekiel chapter 20 verses 41 and 42 I will accept you with your sweet savour when I bring you out from the people etc. And there shall ye remember your ways, and all your doings, wherein ye have been defiled, and ye shall loathe yourselves in your own sight, for all your evils that ye have committed. Chapter 36, verses 26, 27, and 31. A new heart also will I give unto you, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, etc. Then shall ye remember your own evil ways, and your doings that were not good, and shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and for your abominations. Chapter 16, verse 63 That thou mayest remember, and be confounded, and never open thy mouth any more because of thy shame, when I have pacified toward thee for all that thou hast done, saith the Lord. Job 42, verse 6 I abhor myself, and repent in dust and ashes. As we would therefore make the Holy Scriptures our rule in judging of the nature of true religion, and judging of our own religious qualifications and state, it concerns us greatly to look at this humiliation as one of the most essential things pertaining to true Christianity. This is the principal part of the great Christian duty of self-denial. That duty consists in two things, 
vis-a-vis, first in a man's denying his worldly inclinations, and in forsaking and renouncing all worldly objects and enjoyments, and secondly, in denying his natural self-exaltation, and renouncing his own dignity and glory, and in being emptied of himself, so that he does freely and from his very heart, as it were, renounce himself, and annihilate himself. Thus the Christian doth in evangelical humiliation. And this latter is the greatest and most difficult part of self-denial. Although they always go together, and one never truly is where the other is not, yet natural men can come much nearer to the former than the latter. Many anchorites and recluses have abandoned, though without any true mortification, the wealth and pleasures and common enjoyments of the world, who were far from renouncing their own dignity and righteousness. They never denied themselves for Christ, but only sold one lust to feed another, sold a beastly lust to pamper a devilish one, and so were never the better, but their latter end was worse than their beginning. They turned out one black devil to let in seven white ones, that were worse than the first, though of a fairer countenance. It is inexpressible and almost inconceivable how strong a self-righteous, self-exalting disposition is naturally in man, and what he will not do and suffer to feed and gratify it, and what lengths have been gone in a seeming self-denial in other respects by Essenes and Pharisees among the Jews, and by Papists, many sects of heretics and enthusiasts among professing Christians, and many Mahometans, and by Pythagorean philosophers and others among the heathen, and all to do sacrifice to this Moloch of spiritual pride or self-righteousness, and that they may have something wherein to exalt themselves before God and above their fellow creatures. That humiliation which has been spoken of is what all the most glorious hypocrites who make the most splendid show of mortification to the world and high religious affection do grossly fail in. Were it not that this is so much insisted on in Scripture as a most essential thing in true grace, one would be tempted to think that many of the heathen philosophers were truly gracious, in whom was so bright an appearance of many virtues, and also great illuminations, and inward fervours, and elevations of mind, as though they were truly the subjects of divine elapses and heavenly communications. It is true that many hypocrites make great pretences to humility, as well as other graces, and very often there is nothing whatsoever which they make a higher profession of. They endeavour to make a great show of humility in speech and behaviour, but they commonly make bungling work of it, though glorious work in their own eyes. They cannot find out what a humble speech and behaviour is, or how to speak and act, so that there may indeed be a savour of Christian humility in what they say and do. That sweet, humble air and mean is beyond their art, being not led by the Spirit, or naturally guided to a behaviour becoming holy humility by the vigour of a lowly spirit within them. And therefore they have no other way, many of them, but only to be much in declaring that they be humble, and telling how they were humbled to the dust at such and such times, and abounding in very bad expressions which they use about themselves, such as, I am the least of all saints, I am a poor vile creature, I am not worthy of the least mercy, or that God should look upon me, oh, I have a dreadful wicked heart, my heart is worse than the devil, oh, this cursed heart of mine, etc. Such expressions are very often used, not with a heart that is broken, 
not with spiritual mourning, not with the tears of her that washed Jesus' feet, not as remembering and being confounded, and never opening their mouth more because of their shame when God is pacified, as the expression is, Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 63, but with a light air, with smiles in the countenance, or with a pharisaical affectation. And we must believe that they are thus humble and see themselves so vile upon the credit of their say-so. For there is nothing appears in them of any savour of humility in the manner of their deportment and deeds that they do. There are many that are full of expressions of their own vileness, who yet expect to be looked upon as eminent and bright saints by others as their due. And it is dangerous for any, so much as to hint the contrary, or to carry it towards them any otherwise, than as if we looked upon them as some of the chief of Christians. There are many that are much in crying out of their wicked hearts, and their great shortcomings, and unprofitableness, and speaking as though they looked on themselves as the meanest of the saints, who yet, if a minister should seriously tell them the same things in private, and should signify that he feared they were very low and weak Christians, and thought they had reason solemnly to consider of their great barrenness and unprofitableness, and falling so much short of many others, it would be more than they could digest. They would think themselves highly injured, and there would be a danger of a rooted prejudice in them against such a minister. There are some that are abundant in talking against legal doctrines, legal preaching, and legal spirit, who do but little understand the thing they talk against. A legal spirit is a more subtle thing than they imagine. It's too subtle for them. It lurks and operates and prevails in their hearts, and they are most notoriously guilty of it at the same time when they are inveighing against it. So far as a man is not emptied of himself and of his own righteousness and goodness in whatever form or shape, so far he is of a legal spirit. A spirit of pride of man's own righteousness, morality, holiness, affection, experience, faith, humiliation, or any goodness whatsoever, is a legal spirit. It was no pride in Adam before the fall to be of a legal spirit, because of his circumstances he might seek acceptance by his own righteousness. But a legal spirit in a fallen sinful creature can be nothing else but spiritual pride, and reciprocally a spiritually proud spirit is a legal spirit. There is no man living that is lifted up with a conceit of his own experiences and discoveries, and upon the account of them glisters in his own eyes, but what trusts in his experiences and makes a righteousness of them. However he may use humble terms, and speak of his experiences as of the great things God has done for him, and it may be calls upon others to glorify God for them, yet he that is proud of his experiences arrogates something to himself, as though his experiences were some dignity of his. And if he looks on them as his own dignity, he necessarily thinks that God looks on them so too, for he necessarily thinks his own opinion of them to be true, and consequently judges that God looks on them as he does, and so unavoidably imagines that God looks on his experiences as a dignity in him, as he looks on them himself and that he glisters as much in God's eyes as he does in his own. And thus he trusts in what is inherent in him to make him shine in God's sight and recommend him to God. And with this encouragement he goes before God in prayer, and this makes him expect much from God, and this makes him think that Christ loves him, and that he is willing 
clothe him with his righteousness, because he supposes that he is taken with his experiences and graces. And this is a high degree of living on his own righteousness, and such persons are in the high road to hell. Poor deluded wretches, who think they look so glistering in God's eyes when they are smoke in his nose, and are many of them more odious to him than the most impure beast in Sodom that makes no pretense to religion. To do as they do is to live upon experiences according to the true notion of it, and not to do as those who only make use of spiritual experiences as evidences of a state of grace, and in that way receive hope and comfort from them. There is a sort of men who indeed abundantly cry down works, and cry up faith in opposition to works, and set up themselves very much as evangelical persons in opposition to those that are of a legal spirit, and make a fair show of advancing Christ and the gospel, and the way of free grace, who are indeed some of the greatest enemies to the gospel way of free grace, and most dangerous opposers of pure, humble Christianity. There is a pretended great humiliation, and being dead to the law, and emptied of self, which is one of the biggest and most elated things in the world. Some there are who have made great profession of experience of a thorough work of the law on their hearts, and of being brought fully off from works, whose conversation has savoured most of a self-righteous spirit of any that ever I had opportunity to observe, and some who think themselves quite emptied of themselves, and are confident that they are abased in the dust, are full as they can hold with the glory of their own humility, and lifted up to heaven with a high opinion of their own abasement. Their humility is a swelling, self-conceited, confident, showy, noisy, assuming humility. It seems to be the nature of spiritual pride to make men conceited and ostentatious of their humility. This appears in that first born of pride among the children of men that would be called his holiness, even the man of sin, that exalts himself above all that is called God or is worshipped. He styles himself servant of servants, and to make a show of humility washes the feet of a number of poor men at his inauguration. For persons to be truly emptied of themselves, and to be poor in spirit and broken in heart, is quite another thing, and has other effects than many imagine. It is astonishing how greatly many are deceived about themselves as to this matter, imagining themselves most humble when they are most proud, and their behaviour is really the most haughty. The deceitfulness of the heart of man appears in no one thing so much as this of spiritual pride and self-righteousness. The subtlety of Satan appears in its height in his managing of persons with respect to this sin. And perhaps one reason may be that here he has most experience. He knows the way of its coming in, he is acquainted with the secret, springs of it. It was his own sin. Experience gives vast advantage in leading souls, either in good or evil. But though spiritual pride be so subtle and secret an iniquity, and commonly appears under a pretext of great humility, yet there are two things by which it may, perhaps universally and surely, be discovered and distinguished. The first thing is this. He that is under the prevalence of this distemper is apt to think highly of his attainments in religion as comparing himself with others. 
it is natural for him to fall into that thought of himself that he is an eminent saint that he is very high amongst the saints and has distinguishedly good and great experiences that is the secret language of his heart luke chapter 18 verse 11 god i thank thee that i am not as other men and isaiah chapter 65 verse 5 i am holier than thou hence such are apt to put themselves forward among god's people and as it were to take a high seat among them as if there was no doubt of it but it belonged to them they as it were naturally do that which christ condemns luke chapter 14 verse 7 etc take the highest room this they do by being forward to take upon them the place and business of the chief to guide teach direct and manage they are confident that they are guides to the blind a light of them which are in darkness instructors of the foolish teachers of babes romans chapter 2 verses 19 and 20 it is natural for them to take it for granted that it belongs to them to do the part of dictators and masters in matters of religion and so they implicitly affect to be called of men rabbi which is by interpretation master as the pharisees did matthew chapter twenty three verses six and seven i e they are yet apt to expect that others should regard them and yield to them as masters in matters of religion but he whose heart is under the power of christian humility is of a contrary disposition if the scriptures are at all to be relied on such a one is apt to think his attainments in religion to be comparatively mean and to esteem himself low among the saints and one of the least of saints humility or true lowliness of mind disposes persons to think others better than themselves philippians chapter 2 verse 3 in loneliness of mind let each esteem others better than themselves hence they are apt to think the lowest room belongs to them and their inward disposition naturally leads them to obey that precept of our saviour luke chapter 14 verse 10 it is not natural to them to take it upon them to do the part of teachers but on the contrary they are disposed to think they are not the persons that others are fitter for it than they as it was with moses and jeremiah exodus chapter 3 verse 11 jeremiah chapter 1 verse 6 though they were such eminent saints and of great knowledge it's not natural to them to think that it belongs to them to teach but to be taught they are much more eager to hear and to receive instruction from others than to dictate to others james chapter 1 verse 19 be ye swift to hear and slow to speak and when they do speak it's it's not natural to them to speak with a bold masterly air but humility disposes them rather to speak trembling hosea chapter 13 verse 1 when ephraim spake trembling he exalted himself in israel but when he offended in baal he died they are not apt to assume authority and to take upon them to be chief managers and masters but rather to be subject to others james chapter 3 verses 1 and 2 be not many masters 1 peter chapter 5 verse 5 all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility ephesians chapter 5 verse 21 submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of god end of section 11 of part 3 recording by matthew james gray mjgray.id.au